You're listening to the audio podcast of the weekly message preached at Central United Methodist Church. We're located in the Ballston neighborhood of Arlington, Virginia. You're invited to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. Visit us on the web at cumcballston dot o-r-g. There you can learn more about our congregation, where we worship God, serve others, and embrace all. Our scripture reading is Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26. Good morning. Life by the Spirit. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. This is the word of God for the people of God. So the religious leaders of the law liked to challenge Jesus. Sometimes they would accuse him of violating the law, like when he healed on the Sabbath. Other times they would try to ask him some legal question to get him confused and give a wrong answer. In Matthew's Gospel, it tells a story of the Sadducees, one group of leaders, who tried to trick Jesus with a complicated question. And Jesus answered with wisdom they couldn't refute. Then the story continues. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now remember, these religious leaders had over 600 laws in scripture that they tried to follow. How could Jesus name just one? Who knows how Jesus answered that? Anyone remember what he said? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. 
The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus found a way to summarize all of the law and the stories of the prophets together. He summed it up with love. We often call this the great commandment. All of God's laws and hundreds of years of scripture summed up in one idea. The scripture that Tricia just read for us comes from a portion of the letter that St. Paul wrote to the church at Galatia. He was instructing them in the Christian faith, and he echoed the words of Jesus, that the entire law is fulfilled in the commandment to love. But humans like to overcomplicate matters. We don't always agree what love looks like. Is it love or is it enabling? Is it love or is it codependency? There are plenty of ways to disagree about what love looks like. Having Jesus embody the law of love was enough for those 12 disciples who lived with him for three years. But now, not even a century later, the early church is wondering what does it mean to love? And so they needed some clarification from St. Paul. Now we're living thousands of years after Jesus, and so we often disagree on what love looks like. John Wesley, who was the Anglican preacher who organized the people called Methodist, he proclaimed that the law of love was the way that we were to orient our lives. He knew that if we sought after God's love, it would change us. It would fill our lives with more love and less sin. He called this the process of sanctification, being made holy in love. Now, lots of preachers proclaim that, but people don't talk about them hundreds of years later. What was different about Wesley is that he was also good at organizing people and teaching them, helping them have the tools to cooperate with God at work in their lives, helping them better understand how God was changing their hearts, their minds, and their souls. Wesley organized people into small groups. They met weekly for spiritual growth. He called these groups societies. These Wesleyan societies attracted so many members they had to subdivide into other small groups that he called classes. Each group had about a dozen people who met every week. There were other groups for the leaders of the classes to go to, and they even had a special group called backsliders for people who had fallen back into the lives of sin. The early Methodists were serious about seeking sanctification about being made more perfect in love. And for that reason, Wesley sought to equip them. Historian Richard Heisenrader explained in his book, Wesley and the People Called Methodist, that in order to join a Methodist society, people were required to demonstrate only one condition, a desire to flee from the wrath to come, to be saved from their sins. Those who desired to continue in the societies, however, were expected to evidence their desire of salvation. First, by doing no harm. Secondly, by doing good. Thirdly, by attending upon all the ordinances of God. 
Wesley was saying that if you keep showing up to this Methodist society, you are going to have the fruit of the Spirit in your lives. You are going to learn how to live by the commandment of love. But he had to break that down into simple rules that people understood how to follow. These rules were the compass so that people could find the destination of Jesus. Following these three simple rules kept those early Methodists in alignment and obedience to the teachings of Christ. Wesley always concerned himself with the practical aspects of living out our theology into holy lives. The rules are pretty simple to remember, but the challenge isn't just knowing them, it is living them. First, to quote Wesley, by doing no harm, by avoiding evil of every kind, especially that which is most generally practiced. And then he went on to list about 20 different generally practiced evils of his day. Anybody want to guess something he would have put on this list of things that we should not do because they would harm ourselves or others or God? Drunkenness. Drunkenness. What did you say, Chris? Adultery? Oh, debauchery. Yes, general debauchery. He has very specific debauchery listed, though. What other things do you think Wesley would have said not to do? Kill, maim? Envy. Envy. Manipulate. Ooh, that's a good one. So we all agree on the big ones, right? But those, we hope, are not generally practiced. Some of the ones that Wesley saw generally practiced, that he said, if you're a Methodist seeking after holiness, these are the harm you will avoid doing. You won't take the name of God in vain. You won't profane the day of the Lord, either by doing ordinary work or buying or selling. So again, he's just repeating the Ten Commandments on those two, right? But then we have drunkenness, we have slaveholding, no buying or selling of slaves, no fighting, quarreling, brawling, returning evil for evil, no putting on of gold and costly apparel. That was very specific to the way that Wesley understood Christians lived in the world. He took very seriously the fact that we are to care for others and offer them food and offer them clothing and offer them what we have. So he felt that if we were putting on gold and costly apparel, then we were letting someone else go hungry or not have clothes to wear. He also said we shouldn't borrow without the probability of paying or taking up goods without the probability of paying for them. We also shouldn't charge an immense interest on loans that we make to others. He has this list. And it's divided into ways that we might harm ourselves, ways that we might harm others, or ways that we might harm God. Now, we might look at this 200-year-old list that Wesley wrote and think, well, not all of them apply anymore. We certainly don't have slaves in our nation. But I think if we look closely at some of these, we might be doing harm, not intentionally, but unintentionally. We must examine our lives to notice the places where we do harm so that we can change our behavior. 
Wesley had people do this self-examination in those small groups. They would share with one another the places where they had harmed others or where they had sinned, the places where they had fallen down, because that was a place to admit how human you were and to offer grace to one another. But we don't have to just have a small group. We can also pray daily on our own and ask God to show us the places where we may have caused harm intentionally or unintentionally. Recently, I had a conversation with someone, and that night, as I was praying this daily exam, that conversation came back to mind, and I realized I may have said something that caused harm, not intending to. And so I had to go to this person and apologize to them if I had caused harm, and this person immediately extended grace. It was a chance for me to receive the grace that I needed if I had caused harm unintentionally. But there are other ways that I have caused harm unintentionally in my life. I, as a result of this sermon, started looking at some of those systems that I participate in. And one of them took me to an article in the Washington Post from June 5th. It was an article about some of my favorite companies in this world, companies that make chocolate. However, the Holy Spirit led me to this article so that I could learn something I didn't know before. There are children working in fields to harvest the beans that are required to make chocolate. There was an interview with one of the farmers on a farm in the Ivory Coast in West Africa. And on this farm, some children as young as 10 years old were working. And in this interview, the farmer says, there's a lot of them coming, said the farmer who asked that his name not be used because he didn't want to attract attention from the authorities. It's them who do the work. The farmer said he was paying the boy's grand patron, the big boss, who manages the boys. He paid that man a little less than $9 per child for a week of work, and that big boss, in turn, would pay half to the boys. The farmer said he considers the boys' treatment unfair, but hired them because he needed the help. The low price for cocoa makes life difficult for everyone, he said. I admit that it is a kind of slavery, the farmer said. They are still kids and they have the right to be educated today. But they bring them here to work and it's the boss who takes the money. If I continue purchasing chocolate made from the labor of children, I am doing harm and supporting modern day slavery. I have a lot more research to do into this matter. My hope and prayer is that there is some chocolate available for purchase that is free from this system of harm. But if there isn't, as much as I may love all the different varieties of chocolate, it is a simple solution that I will stand up and refuse to continue to do harm and to support slavery. If you asked me a week ago, is chocolate a discipleship issue? I would have laughed and thought that you were about to tell me some kind of joke. 
but here I am having worked with the research that I found and with the Holy Spirit pushing me to learn more about the ways that I may have caused harm even unintentionally by continuing to support a company who relies upon the field labor of children. If we are attentive to doing no harm, it includes both conscious and unconscious, and it includes individual and corporate. Bishop Reuben Job wrote a book about these three simple rules, and in his book he wrote, each of us knows of groups that are locked in conflict, sometimes over profound issues, and sometimes over issues that are just plain silly. But the conflict is real, the divisions are deep, and the consequences can be devastating. If, however, all who are involved agree to do no harm, the climate in which the conflict is going on is immediately changed. How is it changed? Well, if I am to do no harm, I can no longer speak gossip about the conflict. I can no longer speak disparagingly about those involved in the conflict. I can no longer manipulate the facts of the conflict. I can no longer diminish those who do not agree with me and must honor each as a child of God. I will guard my lips, my mind, and my heart so that my language will not disparage, injure, or wound another child of God. I must do no harm even while I seek a common good. So we can choose to do no harm. We may not always agree with someone else about an issue, but if we approach that other person as a child of God and we affirm that we will do no harm, it will change that conflict. What would it be like if every church committed to that about disagreements? The United Methodist Church has lived with disagreements at our denominational level for so many years now, and so much harm has been done in the way that we talk about people we do not agree with. I think the world would change if just the Methodists agreed to stop doing harm to one another it would have ripple effects that go out around the globe. If each of us took seriously the commitment to do no harm, both consciously and unconsciously, individually and corporately, the ways that we do harm to God by not honoring the Sabbath, it harms our relationship to God. The ways that we do harm to others and the ways that we harm ourselves when we allow ourselves to stay in relationships that are not healthy, when we allow ourselves to be so busy that we cannot tend to our basic need to sleep and to eat well. If we started every morning committing to say, I will do no harm to myself, I will do no harm to others, and I will do no harm to God today, how would that change the way that we live? The way that we earn money, the way that we spend money, the way that we choose to spend our time. Doing no harm is probably one of the most difficult of these three rules to practice. Because doing harm can come in so many interesting varieties. 
But the good news, we don't make this commitment alone. This is not just about willpower. This is not just about us leaving today saying, I'm going to be a better person because I'm going to try harder. This is about us joining together with the work of God in our lives. It is about cooperating with the grace that is alive in us. God at work making us more loving and less sinful every day. And if we join together in this community and we journey together, we will have the opportunity to grow more loving every day. One of the things that's important is to have someone else on the journey. If you're not in one of our small groups, maybe just find one other person. Maybe find one person that you can talk with about your spiritual journey to share where God is at work in your life, how God is inviting you to grow. If you want to be in a small group and you're not, you can make one. Invite a few other people to join with you, to follow these rules, to do no harm, to do good, and to stay in love with God. Because we have a legacy of fruitful living that when we join together with God at work in us and when we join together with our fellow pilgrims on the journey, we will seek God's holiness in our lives and we will bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We don't grow this fruit ourselves, but we cooperate with the one who does. So siblings in Christ this week, I invite you to listen to the Holy Spirit, to think about the next step on your journey of doing no harm, doing good, and staying in love with God to cultivate the fruit of God's Spirit in your life.